Christ save yourself and us. I mean, he clearly misses who Jesus is and the meaning of his death. Because he begins where the crowd left off, meaning they, he rails at him. And we have read earlier, the rulers mocked him, the synagogue rulers, the religious people, they mocked Jesus. The soldiers mocked Jesus as well. And it's interesting that both religious leaders and the secular leaders of that time are both in agreement on one thing. That there is no way that someone dying on a cross can be the chosen one. And this man, he joins in into this because of the cross. And all that it represents is utter foolishness. And as different as all of these people are who are there in this scene, they agree on one thing. Jesus should be mocked for his claim that he is Messiah and King. And it reminds us of what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, when he says, But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. There is something they could not see because they were so busy believing that the only way someone could be Messiah is that they would conquer the way the world works. And this first criminal just went along with everyone else. Just believed that this was the case. But not only that, we see that he actually has a test for Jesus. Did you notice this? He said, well, if you are the Christ, if you are the Messiah, you can prove it to us because, hey, we are all being executed. Why don't you do something about it, Jesus? That's how you can prove it to me. Remember, until this point in Jesus' ministry, he's given lots of proof through his teaching, through his miracles, through who he is, his claims, all of it. But this man, he wants more. He says, save yourself and us. He's saying, Jesus, won't you change my circumstance, do something about my life? There's an immediate need here. We only have a few minutes left. I have an immediate, desperate need, and I need you, Jesus, to come and address this. Get me off this cross. Because he cannot understand that somehow Jesus himself, who is Messiah, would not change his circumstance. And perhaps that's part of your story and I know often that's part of mine. We often turn to God and we actually ask Him, Lord, if you're really there, if you're really Messiah, can you just show up because I need you to save me? And we feel like at that moment, when He didn't meet our demands, He didn't show up the way we expect Him to, we sour on God. And we begin, again, to be unable to see the beauty and the clarity of all that Jesus has done and claimed. And this is one of the reasons we tend to miss Jesus. And on Good Friday, one of the things that we're encouraged to do is to begin to see Jesus clearly. Don't let the crowds confuse us. Don't let our circumstances dictate whether we begin to believe in Jesus or not. Or let that be the main thing that drives us. But we're here because we want to reflect on what he said, what he did, what he accomplished. And Jesus is saying, look at the cross. This is foolishness that everyone else 
this first criminal, and he said, But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he's beginning to see Jesus clearly. Hear that last phrase again. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Remember, Jesus is hanging on a cross. Everyone else thinks your time has ended, Jesus. You are a failure. And for some reason, he's able to understand something. Jesus, you are actually coming into your kingdom. Did you catch this? Everyone else thinks he's a failure. And this man is saying, Jesus, you are actually achieving something. Your kingdom is coming. He has faith, he's seeing, he's believing. And he's saying to Jesus, you know what I want? I want you to remember me. I want you. He's not asking to get off the cross. He's actually seeing himself rightly. And he's saying, Jesus, it's through your death on the cross, your kingdom is coming. I am going to have a relationship with you. I want you to think of me. I want you to remember me. I want a relationship with you. Nothing else matters at this point. And he begins to see Jesus clearly. And instead of asking God and Jesus for something he wants in his life, he's saying, you are what I want. There is nothing more important than to be remembered by and all of this starts because back in verse 41, he begins to say, We, don't you fear God? We justly deserve what is taking place. And he has a very clear sense of his incredible need. He sees himself rightly and with great sobriety. You know, Tish Harrison Warren uh, wrote an editorial in the New York Times a few weeks back entitled, We're All Sinners. And accepting that actually is a good thing. Perhaps you've seen this. And on Good Friday, perhaps it's good news for us to consider what she's saying. And she writes this about her own spiritual journey. In college, through a string of failed relationships and theological questioning, I came to understand sin as something more fundamental than rule-breaking, more subtle and under the hood of my consciousness. It was a way that I would casually manipulate people to get my way. It was a hidden but obnoxious need for approval. It was that part of me that could not rejoice in a friend's big award or accomplishment, even as some other part told her, Congratulations! My favorite definition of sin comes from the English author Francis Buffer. He says that most of us in the West think of sin as a word that basically means indulgence or enjoyable naughtiness. Instead, he calls sin the human propensity to mess things up. Only he doesn't use the word mess. <laughs> but this is an accident. It's not an accident. This is something that is baked into our hearts because we are profoundly broken. And here is this criminal who begins to realize there is God who is holy. What I deserve right now is right. 
Jesus, my only hope, you are coming and your kingdom is coming. And I want to have a relationship with you. You know what's amazing about this guy is um, if you look at Matthew's account of this story, in Matthew 27, 44, it reads this way. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. So you add this on to everything Luke's telling us, and here's what's been happening. Both of these criminals have been mocking Jesus. Both of them have been saying, Jesus, you're a failure. You're a loser. You're a fool. How can you be the Messiah? But along the way, in these moments, on the cross, something is beginning to happen in and the only thing I can find that kind of points to anything like this that would lead him is what Jesus actually said earlier on in the passage. And this is the third point. Let's look at what Jesus said. He said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. There is something that is taking place here as he hears these words of Jesus falsely accused that somehow he is being punished for something he did not do. He recognizes this. And he has this moment of cognitive dissonance and spiritual clarity to realize Jesus is doing something. I am witnessing something miraculous and spectacular, which is God bringing salvation to this world. I have been an enemy of God and his heart begins to turn He's saying, he's suffering for me. He is innocent. He is Messiah. He's going to accomplish what he said would happen. So he asked Jesus in repentance, Jesus, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. He doesn't know what Jesus is going to say, but what does Jesus actually say? He says, truly, I say to you, Today you will be with me in paradise. I mean, up until a minute ago, I was cursing you, Jesus, and mocking you. I was failing you along with everyone else. And here is Jesus saying, now today you will be with me in paradise. Yes, of course, he's going to die. He's going to be with Jesus one day. But he's saying something else for us even now. That this is our eternal hope. That even in the midst of suffering, here's what Jesus is telling us. Hey, when you begin to believe in me and see me for who I am, and you put your faith and trust in me that I am dying for your sins, not only am I taking that upon myself, I am giving you something, my righteousness, my goodness, so that you never have to doubt that I am with you, that you are with me. That we are united to Jesus. And this is the good news of Good Friday. That through his death, our sins are taken away. That his righteousness becomes ours. And this isn't something that we just get one day in the future when we go to heaven, which is absolutely true. But we actually have this right now. That's the promise of the gospel. And you're saying, where do we get that? And you know, if you go back to Ephesians chapter 2, here's something that I think uh, we need to remember. When you go to Ephesians 2, there's a passage where the Apostle Paul begins to talk about 
our relationship to God in verse 4. Let me just read this for us. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now if you read that carefully, you realize something. We've been raised up with him, and we are seated. It's not we're going to be seated. We are seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He's talking about it as if this is true of us now. He's saying this is our hope. And we begin to live out of this hope in a changed life. Looking at the world and recognizing, you know what? I have the love of God the Father. And this means I can face anything. When people ignore me, when I'm snubbed, when I don't get that promotion, when I'm not recognized in my family, when people say harsh things, when I'm bullied at school, when you hear that comment that puts you down, you have an ability to process and deal with all of these things in a new and profound way where bitterness doesn't have to grow. But you begin to see something. That the one who says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Also empowers us to have patience. Allows us to say, a root of bitterness will not grow. That we are patient with others. That our hearts are softened. That as we wait for the kingdom of God, we go out to plant seeds of resurrection life that says, God's kingdom is here. That forgiveness is real. That reconciliation is possible. That racial strife can be done away with. That a unity comes because we are now brothers and sisters in Christ because that's who we are in Jesus. That's new life. Jesus accomplished. He said, when you believe in me, you will be with me in paradise. Let's go to him in prayer. But Father, we thank you that your son was willing to suffer, willing to die, willing to endure humiliation in order that we would be united to you. What a tremendous gift to tell us how much you love us. That you are a God who will do anything and everything within and earth in order to be with his people. And Father, help us to rejoice in that. Help us to be thankful. Help us to be full of hope in the midst of hard things that we're facing now. But most of all today, help us Lord, by your spirit, to look to the one who has given us life. And we get to him.